Hey, excited to bring the word to you this morning as we're wrapping up the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Uh, exciting, exciting message. Um, you know, the final message to the seven churches. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, we see that, that Revelation is, actually has its own outline. An amazing book, right? It has its own outline, has its own blessing, but uh, John was told to write down the things which he had seen, that was chapter one. Then he says the things which are, and that's chapters two and three, and that was the letter to the seven churches that were there in, in Asia Minor. And thirdly, the things which will take place after this. Uh, and, and once again, this is an interesting fact, just a little data point to put in. Maybe we'll get into this in weeks to come. But uh, this will be the last time that the, the word church is used in Revelation until the end, until chapter 22. Or ch- yeah, chapter 22. So it's the last best mention of church until t- the, end of th- the end of the book. And once again, these were seven literal churches that were spread throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey now, uh, and those letters were to be read in that individual church that it was addressed to, but also be read throughout the, all seven churches as well. Um, interesting, and it's one of those things that, that Scripture is not totally clear, but I believe that they were written kind of prophetically that these churches speak of the seven different types of churches that would take place over the period of, of, of church history. And then once again, there's a personal message in, in the, each of these letters as well, because it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And we all have an ear, and we're able to hear this message. Now, Years ago, and you, you know me, I like my outdoor backpacking stories. Well, years ago, I was out backpacking by myself. Don't worry, if I take your students out, I don't get them into these kind of shenanigans. But I was out behind Ojai, and it was pushing into like triple digit you know, weather, like almost 100 degrees, and I'd begun to like get really low on my water. And if you know anything about being in the backcountry, that's not, that's not ideal. And I'd I start pulling up my map and trying to figure out where the springs are because the creeks weren't flowing at that time of the year. And so I was trying to track down springs. I remember going to one spring and it was dry. And you're like, oof, okay, this is a situation. Uh, went to the next spring and, and sure enough, that one was flowing and straight out of the mountain, you know, in a hot day, straight out of the mountain, you can just put your mouth right up to where it was just leaking out, out of that rock and just drink it. And it just, I mean, talk about the cold refreshment, of that, that water, that life that it brought you. Uh, it was so good. And then on the flip side of it, back in my bachelor days, I've, I was in Lone Pine with a friend in the winter of 2005, and we, uh, he, my friend Chad and I, we, we, we used to go rock climbing like two, three times a week, you know, I just had all the free time in the world. And so we'd go rock climbing in the Santa Barbara backcountry to get ready for these trips where we'd go up to Alabama Hills and different places up by Lone Pine, up in the high desert. And if you know anything about the high desert in the winter, it gets cold at night. And so on this cold night, we, we decided, because we were camping out, and we decided to like, try to escape the cold, so we went and watched the movie Walk the Line, I think, the Johnny Cash movie that came out in 20, 2005. So we watched that in this little podunk movie theater in Lone Pine, and we went outside, and it was so cold. We're like, man, how are we going to warm up? He's like, hey, I got an idea. So this place called Kino Hot Springs, every night, uh, it's a natural hot springs. They release the water into these little creeks. So you have to go find out where downstream where the water's released. And I remember standing by this lake, and it was, you know, this little creek, and you kept feeling it every few minutes to try to see if it's warming up yet, to see if that water had finally made it down. And it, it got to a point where it was just warm enough to, like, 
warm you up, but it wasn't like a hot tub where you're like, you know, sweating in it. It was just, it was just warm enough there in that hot spring. And I think this is going to play, lock those two stories into your brain as we jump into this book, this, this seventh and final letter to the church uh, at Laodicea. Now, once again, this is the seventh of the church uh, of, of, of the churches that is that, G- that Jesus is writing to through John, who's stuck on the island of Patmos. Uh, it, and even each of these seven churches, he, he has really uh, different points. It, each one is, is to who it's written to. Uh, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ to that church itself. Uh, there's a recognition or a commendation of the church and how it's do- going or what, what, what's it, what it's doing. And then the, Jesus gives a reproof or correction to each of those churches, all but two, including uh, do not receive any kind of correction. And then there's an instruction given to, on how to fix that error, and then there's a reward at the end. And so this letter is written to the church in Laodicea. And I thought before we dive into the scripture, let's just, let's just dive into Laodicea, try to figure out what the context, and maybe it'll make the scripture kind of become a, a, a little more alive to us. So let me give you some facts on this, this place called Laodicea. And so I have an aerial f- photo of, of, of Laodicea, and that, that's really a really place that's still being unearthed. Archaeology is still, there's still a lot of archaeology to happen there. In fact, um, Turkey wants to make it the next Ephesus as far as like pe- where people go to see all these ancient ruins. They, they still have a lot of work to be doing to uncover what exactly was going on there. But Laodicea is a compound work in the, in the Greek. It's Leo, uh, meaning, Laos, meaning people, and then Diako, which means I rule, or the rule of the people. It was a, you know, in a sense, it was a democracy, the rule of the people. And it became a very important city during the Roman times. In fact, a number of, of, of Roman roads intersect that place. It was the crossroads of major, many major Roman roads. Um, it became the, the capital city in the, of at least 25 towns in the area. And, and it was the wealthiest of the cities, especially when this letter was written. It was a place where a lot of spiritual and spirituality was taking place. Uh, the first temple ever constructed was uh, constructed to the god Mankaru, or the god of the valley. And he was later, uh, as time went on, morphed into the Zeus. And Zeus became the, the patron de- deity of, of that valley, Lycus. And there was temples to many gods, multiple gods. We have um, Apollo, Zeus, Asclepius, Hades, Hera, Athena, Serapis, Dionysus, and others all had their own temples there in Laodicea. So we can see that it was a highly religious place. But it was also a very wealthy place. There was Turkish baths. There was a huge promenade for marketplace. Lots of businesses were going on, were going on there. Uh, as far as wealth, for how small of a city it was, uh, it was still able to boast a 20,000-person amphitheater. So it was, it was a place, for, for how small it was, it, it had many, many things going for it. And it was located, located in the Lycus Valley, which was rich with agriculture and different textile productions. Uh, once again, it was located at the intersection of, of main Roman roads and where highways and lots of commerce and goods passed through. It was so wealthy that the center of banking for that region was found there in, in Laodicea. 
In fact, they minted their own coins uh, with their own patron deity, Zeus, on their own coins. So it was a wealthy place. Uh, It was also a major uh, production of wool. There was a special wool, a black wool that was produced there. Uh, it, was a, it was known to be really soft and really you know, great to be used for clothing. They, they made tunics there. They were called trimatas. Uh, and sometimes the town was even not nicknamed from that garment, trimateria, because it was just such a great source of income for this, uh, this town, this black garments. Store that away in your head. The other industry was, there was they had a school of medicine that was especially known for its eye salve that was supposed to heal all types of eye issues and eye conditions. Even Aristotle sp- speaks of this uh, Ferrodian powder for his different eye issues. And that eye issue, that the eye salve became known all over the empire as this Laodicean uh, way of healing their eyes. So that was another area that, that wealth was added to this city in Laodicea. So we can see that it was, it was a wealthy city. It was an area for banking. They made their own coins. They had industry where these soft black garments were made. It was a prime location in this little, you know, beautiful, picturesque valley. But if there was an issue with Laodicea, it was its water. There was two small creeks that kind of supported the small town, but as it grew, it needed more water to supply its, and to support its population. And that's where Heriopolis, which is about uh, 10 miles to the north, and Colossae, which is six miles east, come into the picture. See, these are neighboring towns where the water was a main thing for them. And Heriopolis is known for its hot springs and hot mineral baths that are still in use today. Uh, I think I have some, a couple of pictures of these hot springs, and no, they're not. This isn't snow. This is actually mineral deposits coming out of the water. So there's there's Heriopolis, Colossae, and then Laodicea. And Heriopolis is known for these hot springs where the water is always 102 coming out, 102 degrees coming out of the water, uh, coming out of the ground throughout the year. Uh, Colossae sits at the base of the Honus mountain range, and it's known for its fresh cold water springs. Uh, it was right there at the base of the mountain, so they just always had a supply of cold water. And yet that water that came was very heavily mineralized, and we've, well, we've, archaeologists have uncovered these different, oh, yeah, so there's, there's Heriopolis. I mean, what a beautiful place to go to. These hot springs are just still there uh, today. And then this is where Colossae still stands, right at the base of Mount Hormuz. It's still yet to be uncovered as far as archaeology. Uh, so beautiful place, super picturesque. And so, so the issue with Laodicea then was their water. They didn't have enough support. So they began to build pipes from Colossae, from Heropolis, and these pipes brought in water to Laodicea to support their population. But the water was so mineralized that it would clog the pipes, and that was where they first uh, created these sewer drains. That they'd have to lift up the, the drain that uncovers and uncover and clean out the pipes to allow the water to continue flowing. And the water was not known to be the great tasting and so the church, and if that's the, if that's the city of Laodicea, what about the church in Laodicea? Well, it's a, it's a sister church to Colossae. Colossae was only six miles away, and Paul had written written a letter to the to Colossae only about thirty five years prior. 
Colossians chapter 2, verse 1 says, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many have not seen my face uh, in the flesh. See, Paul had not yet gone to Colossae. He had not yet gone to Laodicea, although he desired to, but he'd heard about what was going on there. And then Colossians 4, verses 12 through 15 says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear witness to him that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those who are in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Lymphus and the church that is in his house. And finally, he says, now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you may likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. See, that message to the Colossians was also meant to be read uh, in Laodicea. It was a letter to both churches. And, and, And if you read that letter to the epistle to Laodicea, you're like, wait, we don't have the epistle to Laodicean. And there's two thoughts on that. One thought is it's a lost document that we no longer have. Uh, the other is that um, some, th- some scholars think that the letter of Ephesians, the oldest manuscripts, actually might, it might have been written to the church at Laodicea, which is not far away. It was only a six-day trip. So I want to bring in, before we read the word of God, and we're going to get there in just a minute, what I want to bring into your mind is the idea of the messenger, the perspective from the messenger, the one that was, that was in charge of bringing the message from John on the island of Patmos. Here's the, here's the, here's the, here's the journey of the messenger. So the, the, the message from God was delivered to John on the island of Patmos. He wrote that down. It was traveled on a ship to first to, to Ephesus. From Ephesus it, was, Ephesus, it was brought to Smyrna, Smyrna to Pergamum, Pergamum to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and finally Laodicea. If you were to walk, and, and we know because of Roman roads traversed all these roads, and there's even a website you can go and it'll tell you Roman roads and how long the journeys would have taken, crazy stuff, um, it would have been a fifth, at least a 15-day walk from Ephesus all the way down to Laodicea. And so the messenger would have brought this, you know, these physical documents to each of those churches for them to read amongst their churches, and then he would bring it to the next church. And so word would have spread that a message from John, from Jesus via John, had come and it was being spread among the churches. Because there's so much commerce back and forth between Ephesus and Laodicea, no doubt messengers had come to Laodicea and said, there's a message. And God is bringing a message to the churches here. And you have a message too, but you'll have to wait. And so this messenger, knowing the wealth of that region, knowing just, you know, what type of church and how well off they are, that he's going to now deliver this message to the church. And I think even as he's bringing it to the church, there's a lot of fear and trepidation from the messenger. He knows how this might or might not be received. So with that, I'm going to do a little something different. Let's stand to hear the reading of the word of God. And I'm going to play a video by uh, Appia Media and they have a few screenshots, too, as well of, 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 of uh, Laodicea. So let's play that video. ...of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. 
I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this message that you had for the church at Laodicea, Lord. And yet it wasn't just for them, it was for anyone who has an ear, Lord. So help us, Lord, have ears and hearts to hear what is meant for us to receive here today, Lord. Lord, let us receive, because of your love, what you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks, church. May I take a seat. The context always helps me out, so I hope that, hope that helps you out as we begin to look into this church. And it says, in the angel of the church, this is uh, Revelation 3, starting in verse 14, and to the angel of the church of Laodicea writes, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, for each church, Jesus had a different revelation to that church. And in this church, he seems to, to focus in on these three things. The amen is how Jesus refers to himself. And that's, that's a funny thing. We're used to saying that at the end of, uh, end of a prayer, but what does it mean? What does amen mean? Amen's a strange word because it's transliterated straight from, directly from Hebrew. A Blue Letter Bible says this, the word amen is a most remarkable word. It was transliterated directly from Hebrew into the Greek of many of the New Testament and then into Latin and into English and many other languages. So that's practically a universal word. It has been called the best known word in human speech. The word is directly related, in fact, almost identical to the Hebrew word for believe, amon, or faithful. Thus, it came to mean surely or truly an expression of absolute trust and confidence. That's how Jesus chooses to identify himself in this church as he is the amen. He is as sure and as true as he's ever been. Then he, ref he identifies himself as well as the faithful and the true witness. He's the faithful and true witness of all. From, from time beginning till time passes away, He's remained faithful. And as, as God, is, who stands outside of time, he's a witness to all that happened before it even happened. He's the alpha and the omega, right? The beginning and the end. And then he identifies himself as the beginning of the creation of God. And that's always, I think, kind of tripped up the church. How Jesus, he's the beginning. Was he the first to be created out of the beginning? Does Jesus have a beginning? 
And I, the scripture is very unanimous in saying, no, it is not. He was not a created being, but has always existed as a part of the Trinity. John 1, 1 says this, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. I mean, that's pretty definitive language that Jesus has always existed, and everything that we see is, comes from him. See, the word for beginning is the Greek word arche, meaning uh, it translated sometimes as beginning or ruler, chief or source. And the way that sticks in my head for this beginning, this word that Jesus has used, the beginning of the creation of God, is the way an architect works. Arche in Greek, architect, it's where we get that, our word. An architect wants to you know, design a building. It all starts in his mind, and then it flows out onto a paper until finally someone takes those papers and then builds it. But it starts in the source. Jesus is the source of the creation of God. Nothing was made that wasn't made by him. Colossians 1 verses 15 through 18 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, the visible, the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and he, in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning of the firstborn of the dead. In all things, he may have the preeminence. I think the church at Laodiceans had begun to pull away or gather distance away from their true source, that Jesus was the source that they needed. After the revelation of who Jesus was to the different churches, he would often uh, give a recognition or accommodation, like a pat on the back. Good job, church, you're doing this really well. But ex except ch this church in Sardis, Jesus could not find one thing, or at least doesn't mention one thing, of, of commending this church. He only gives reproof and correction in this letter. And he says this, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were hot or cold. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Whoa, Jesus, that's heavy. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. And Jesus says that, that word, that, that very personal thing, I could wish that you were. His desire is for us to be cold or hot. And I think we often think of, well, Jesus wants us to either be hot and on fire in our faith, or he just wants us to be cold. You know, there's no, there's no middle ground. There's none of that lukewarm stuff going on. But I think that begins to miss the message because there's a usefulness for hot water, like that Kino hot springs that I was tracking down to try to warm up on that cold night. But there's also a usefulness for cold water. Hot or cold, they both have a usefulness. Hot or cold, there's healings in those hot springs that were in Hierapolis, and there's a cold, refreshing water from Colossae. We, we, don't, we can't, yeah, that tastes bad. We can't have, can't be in the middle. See, cold has its, 
cold has its time and its use. In Proverbs 25, 25, it says, as cold water to a weary soul, so is good news from a far country. And Jesus himself in Matthew 10 says, whoever gives one of these little ones a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And he didn't, get, you know, he didn't say just give him a cup of water, he says a cold water. There's refreshing that comes from that. There's a refreshingness that comes in the hot springs as you just warm up. But you see, the Laodiceans, they were so far away from the original true sources of those waters the hot water from Hierapolis, the cold water from, from Colossae. They would, they'd begun to build pipelines to bring that water in. They were away from the source. Because of their wealth, Laodicea thought they could just remain where they're at and just have the water piped in. And that was the issue with the pipes is the hot water from Hierapolis, it just it, it gets lukewarm. It's going gonna, it's gonna to cool down as it comes. That, that cold, refreshing mountain water from Colossae is just going to kind of warm up. As it, so you just have this warm, nasty-ish water. And I, in backpacking, I, also, I have this little camelback. It's called a camelback. It's a little pouch of water. And you have these little tubes that come over your shoulder. And you can just kind of sip on your water whenever you want. And it's, it's great, but on a hot day, that little pipe has heated up all the water. So generally, when I'm backpacking, the first thing I do is I take a swig of that, 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 that camelback and I, I just spit it out because that water doesn't belong in my mouth. That's nasty. And Jesus is saying, man, I want you to be useful. And the usefulness comes to how close you are to the source. The farther from those sources, either of hot water or cold water, the farther they got away from those sources, the less useful they were, the more lukewarm and in the middle. And Jesus says, I wish, once again, not forcing his desire on us, but if we do not acquiesce to his desire, he says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And why did he do that? Because he says, because you say, and this is, this is what the church at Laodiceans was saying. This is what they're saying. They're saying, I am rich, and I have become wealthy, and I, need of, and I have need of nothing. And I do not know that you, and do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. This church, this church in Laodicea had become so self-sufficient. They, they thought they were okay. They thought, we have all the, the wealth. We have need of nothing. Man, if we need water, we'll just, we'll, just, we'll just build up pipes and bring it in. Whatever we need, we can do. We are that self-sufficient. I think the church had begun to take on the zeitgeist of that city in that region. That self-sufficiency. They didn't know their true condition and how Jesus saw them. In 60 AD, a huge earthquake rocked that city in Laodicea, and a lot of the buildings came tumbling down. Rome offered to help them rebuild, and you know what Laodicea said? We got it. We're okay. We will rebuild ourselves. We will use our own money and the wealth of our city to rebuild our temples, rebuild our buildings. Rome, we don't need your help. We are self-sufficient. We're good. And I think the church takes on that same thing. And I think, sadly, our, our, our modern-day church has taken on, on that zeitgeist as well. We, we're okay. We're self-sufficient. I got a bank account. I got everything I need to, to help me survive. I've got... Wealth, I've got riches, I've got everything. 
But Jesus says, no, we're, we're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So what do we do with that kind of calling? What do we do when, when we're, it's the, the truth is laid out and we find out how much we need? That's where beautiful God comes into the picture. Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. And white garments that you may be clothed. See, once again, the Laodicean church that we got these black garments, there's great industry, they give us a lot of money. No, no, that's not the covering. That's not what God's calling you to cover with. I have white garments that speak of righteousness, the God's righteousness. White garments that you may be clothed and the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And to anoint your eyes with the eye salve that you may see. Not the eye salve of the Laodiceans, that the, the schools of medicine know God's eye salve. You see, true wealth, true covering, true righteousness, and true vision only come from Jesus. Isaiah 55, which we sung part of that song this morning, has that same invitation that Jesus is making to the church now. This won't be up on the screen, but Isaiah 55 says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters that you may have no, uh, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. God would say, come and buy from me. And you say, but wait, we don't have anything. How, how do we buy your righteousness? How do we buy your eye salve? How do we buy your covering? How do we buy your gold? And that's amazing part about God. He's like, you don't need it. I have bought the price myself. I have paid for it myself. The rejection of the self-sufficiency and acceptance of the true source of life and abundance, that's what we're being called into. John 15, Jesus said this, the same thing, I believe. He said in this, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and it's withered and they, and they gather them and they're thrown into the fire and they're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit so that you will be my, my disciples. Prosperity, has a way of making us think and feel that we're okay and we don't need Jesus as much as we really think. Or you maybe want to point the finger, oh, my neighbor really needs Jesus. That person, but I'm, I'm good. See, I, I've, got a, I've, got, I've got money in my bank account. I've got retirement set aside. I've got cars that work well. I've got land. I, we, we tend to think, man, I am good. I don't need all this. I am self-sufficient. One of the prayers I wrote in my Bible years ago, I think it was in my dad's Bible as well, but it said this, Lord, please never prosper me above my capacity to maintain my love for you. 
sometimes in prosperity, we think, oh, I don't need really God. And then something happens in our life, and we go like, okay, I gotta go, I gotta go back, and I gotta read my Bible, I gotta connect with the Lord again. And then, and then life goes smooth and the things are going well and then you say, I don't, need to, I don't need to really focus on my devotions anymore. I don't really have, need to have the intimacy that Jesus is calling me to be. And then something just knocks you to your feet and you're like back on your feet. Going, Lord, I need you. My dad, being a, a missionary from you know, the time he was 18 until the day the Lord took him away, he knew what it was like to be on knife's, the knife's edge of poverty. That's just the place the Lord had us growing, growing up. And so because of that, he hated this prosperity gospel. That if, if you have God's favor, then you'll have a lot of wealth and you'll have a lot of things. He hated that. He said that gospel does not work when you're preaching to somebody in the Philippines who lives over a sewer of filth and lives in a, like, you know, their house is erected with cardboard. That gospel will not work there. Does God not love that, much per, that person as much as somebody who lives in the top of a high tower? And that was the thought of the Pharisees and the scribes during the time of Jesus. They thought that wealth meant divine favor. Well, if you were a wealthy rich man, man, you had God's favor. And I think how much, time, how much here on the Central Coast have we adopted that thinking as well? We're a lot better off than those Central Coast or Central Valley people, right? We got it made here. We ease of living. There's, we, have a, we have money in our bank accounts, and yet... How much of that has detracted us from pulling us away from the true source of life and, and covering and righteousness? Abba Jesus said, as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. Church God's, the foundation of God's correction, the foundation of God's allowing hardships or trials in our lives is always because he loves us. It's always because he loves us. To that rich young ruler who thought he had, 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 had accomplished everything that God had called him to, to the rich young ruler, Jesus says, then Jesus looked at him, he says, he loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, take up the cross and follow me. His calling for that young man was because of love. He loved him. When Jesus heard the message that Lazarus was, was on, on the verge of dying, and Mary and Martha, you know, his, his sisters, sent word to Jesus, Jesus withheld. He, he, he stayed away for four days until Lazarus was in the grave for four days. And Jesus permitted Lazarus to die and be laid in the grave so that he might show great things, but it was all because of his love. John 11, verse five says, now Jesus loved Martha and Mary, her sister, and the sister, uh, sorry. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Love permits pain, love permits hardship. Love permitted that pain in their lives. And even... It's told even a, even a broken clock, now that doesn't count for digital ones, but the clocks with the hands is, is, even a broken clock is right twice a day, right? Yeah. So Eliphaz, one of Job's friends, 
As wrong as he was about most things, he was right about this when he said in Job 5, 17, behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, do not despise the chastening of the Almighty. So what do we do with this? Well, therefore, be zealous and repent. There is a call in this having been pulled away from the sources that bring life and refreshment to others. The call for the church in Laodicea to be zealous to have some zeal. It was a throwback to Epaphras from Colossians, the letter to Colossians, who had a great deal of zeal for the Colossians and those who were in Laodicea. It's hard to say, but my, my, our, our students on, on campus are known as the young heirs, but they're also called by other students Jesus freaks. Remember that DC Talk song from the 90s, Jesus freaks? Our kids are our students and applaud them because they are known on campus as the Jesus freaks. And then we're called to repent, to, to change your mind, to turn 180 degrees, turn away from our self-sufficiency. And then Jesus says this, and, and this is, I'm sure, no doubt what we've heard since our youth, if you grew up in church, but behold, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my, hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. That word behold means to look up, to, to, to realize, to take, to take notice of something. You know, that's in the name of God, behold. In the Bible, whenever, whenever you have, God, God is not God's name, Right? The name of the is Lord, the uppercase L, uppercase O R D. When those are an uppercase, that is the name of God. Sometimes it's translated uh, into Jehovah. I, I consider, and most scholars say, it's Yahweh. Yahweh is the name of God. Four uh, uh, four letters, Y H W H, Yod He Vad He in the Hebrew, and this is why this is significant. Because the God who says, you are naked, you're blind, you're poor, and we're like, well, what do we do with that? And the name that God has revealed to himself from the beginning of time is the Lord, Yahweh. This is why it's significant. If you've ever seen block script Hebrew, that's not the original form. It was a pictograph language originally. And each, pick, each, of, those, each of those letters had a, had a meaning, had a symbol behind it. And so Yod... Had the, had the had an arm. It was a hand like this. So it's the it's the inscription of a hand. Yod means hand. Hey means behold. It's a man standing upright, raising his hands. Yod, hey, vav, vav in the ancient pictograph was a a, a nail. Hey. Yod he vav he, the hand, behold, the nail, behold. What did Jesus tell to, uh, to, doubting Thomas when Thomas is like, "Well, I, I, I really have to see him. I have to put my hands in his nail." Jesus says, "Behold the hand and the nails." From the time beginning, this is the God who says, "I will clothe you in righteous in my righteousness. I will provide every need for you." Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I stand outside. Let me in. Let me come in and dine with, with you. Hear my voice. 
One of the most amazing meals I've ever eaten was in Ethiopia, and it's, they, they serve these meals on these pl- huge platters, and it's, you take this, 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 this um, special kind of sourdough mixture, it's called injera, and as a, as a you just big old plate right in the middle of the table, and you take these pieces of kind of like almost tortillas, but it's sp- different, and then you just dip it in, and you begin eating, and everybody's dipping in, and the first, if you're a respected guest, then the person of the, the host of the family will, will grab their own little, you know, mixture of food, and they'll put it in your mouth. Amazing, like just, you know, and it's good spices and meat. It's just this rich. And it was one of the most things was to to meet with this family and just have a meal with them, to share the same plate where you are dining with them. It meant intimacy and and closeness. And that is what Jesus is calling us today with the communion. Come and dine with me and me with you. I have the riches. And there's a reward then for those who overcome. To him who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. To sit is to rest. And we will somehow in heaven have a throne to share with Christ. We will co-rule and co-reign with Christ. We will be given an authority that comes from our connection or our closeness with our Savior to sit on a throne with Jesus. What is that like? Here's the invitation. Repent. If the, if, if, if the Lord is knocking at your door of your own heart and saying, you're, you're, you're too self-sufficient, you think you've got it all together, if he's knocking at the door of your heart, let him in, let him dine. We're gonna take communion together right now This is that same invitation. We do this in remembrance of what he's done for us in his his second coming. So if you have your little cup, First Corinthians says, 11 says this, for I also received from the Lord that which I also was delivered that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take the bread in remembrance of Jesus. In the same manner, he also took of the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. The invitation to commune and dine with Jesus. to respond with prayer. We'll have our prayer team up in a bit. Closing words, and this is our closing prayers. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord, what the church, however the Lord spoke to you through this message, respond in zealousness. Respond in honesty. Thank you, Jesus.
Amen. Amen.